Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green, barely. This week, Terry Winters. The Drawing Center in New York is showing Terry Winters' Facts and Fictions, a nearly four-decade survey of Winters' drawing practice. The exhibition includes both wall-hung large-scale drawings and smaller works presented in vitrines. It was curated by Claire Gilman. The Drawing Center is selling the catalog for the exhibition for $20, and you can read it online for free. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Next month, New York's Matthew Marks Gallery will present an exhibition of Winters' recent paintings. Terry Winters' work has been the subject of many major exhibitions, including most recently at the MFA Boston and at the Louisiana in Denmark. He's also been the subject of shows at the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, the Met and the Whitney in New York, the White Chapel in London, and the Kunsthal Basel. One quick note on my conversation with Terry Winters, which I'm pleased and relieved to say was taped before I sounded like this. A couple times, Winters references an off-tape conversation he and I had about Thomas Cole. The reference was to the extraordinary Thomas Cole's Journey exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. For more on that show, check out our February program with exhibition co-curator Betsy Kornhauser. On the second segment, art historian and curator Stephanie Heckman joins me to discuss before the fall German and Austrian art of the 1930s at New York's Neue Gallery. But first, Terry Winters, after the break. The Q Brothers, internationally acclaimed for their hip-hop adaptions of the classics, star in the Madness of Love mixtape, a remix of Plato's Phaedrus running April 27th through 29th at the Getty Villa. Through a musical conversation, two brothers explore Plato's themes of madness, love, and the soul from opposite approaches, left brain versus right brain, reason-based versus spiritually inspired. Learn more about the Getty Villa and Getty Center's lineup of events this spring at getty.edu slash 360. Adrian Piper, A Synthesis of Intuitions, 1965-2016, to is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art. Bringing together nearly 300 works, it offers a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, and more recently, social engagement and self-transcendence. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents The Final Weeks of Jan Vo, Take My Breath Away, the first comprehensive survey of contemporary artist Jan Vo's work in the United States. In his installations, sculptures, photographs, and works on paper, Vo questions the way we define ourselves through personal histories, cultural affiliations, and national allegiances. He treats objects, whether they are ancient Roman sculptures, letters written by prominent politicians, or glittering chandeliers hanging from a grand Parisian ballroom, as narrative vessels that are both vividly personal and broadly historical. In conjunction with the exhibition, join experimental band Shoo Shoo for a one-night-only concert on Tuesday, May 8th. Learn more at Guggenheim.org. And we're back. Terry Winters, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Nice to be back. I know you didn't personally produce the exhibition catalog, but I vaguely suspect you had some input in the first two pages, which are a presentation of so-called gem diamonds made from graphite by General Electric in 1955. And these are two pages that are in, I think, a 1985 notebook of yours. Did you have input input into those being in the catalog? And, And if so, why? I did, I mean, and I like to think that I had an input in helping to shape uh, the entire publication to make something that could function as a, as a parallel work a, along with the uh, exhibition of drawings. But it's a it's an image I collected as, as you know back in probably in the late seventies, and it just always uh, it just I always felt connected and thought about that image in terms of drawing because of the the material the possibilities of material graphite both on a a physical level of being able to be um, transformed into diamond and also in a kind of metaphoric level in terms of turning turning drawings into diamonds in some sense. I, I love it. At the risk of asking a dumb question, so this 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 is real. This is not a faux press release or something. No, no, this is real. This is real. And so I've had it, I just had it in a notebook for many years and I thought it appropriate to um, use it in the catalog as a sort of frontispiece. It reminded me of 
of Henry David Thoreau and the Thoreau family, kind of the first best American manufacturers of graphite pencils. And then here, as we open your catalog, pencils and diamonds. <laughs> exactly. Thoreau's family manufactured pencils. Yes. Graphite dust probably contributed to his early death, in fact. <laughs> I hope not to mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe, you know, I, I know that you, you mix your own paints, but maybe this is why you don't mix your own, make your own pencils, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm wearing a mask as we speak. <laughs> you know, I actually had that in my, in my notes that you did and maybe still do grind your own pigments for the, for the paint you use in your paintings, and you have a library of books about paint and painting and recipes and such. Is there anything you use in your drawings practice that, that you similarly make or similarly are as specific about? Not so much. I mean, I, I do make a graphite wash occasionally, but the, most of the materials I'm using are available commercially, so there's no, there's no real point to it. So graphite wash, I think, is really the only material I actually make myself. So we're obviously talking on the occasion of an exhibition of your drawings. So let's start by looking at how you think of drawings as fitting into your broader practice. Are they a development of ideas for developing into paintings as something that keeps your hand active and skilled, standalone objects, none of the above, all of the above? I guess all of the above. The central activity that in terms of generating new imagery, in terms of locating my own interests, and in terms of producing imagery that might be developed further either in other drawings and uh, into prints or into paintings so they're really the it's they're the prototypes the foundations the beginning of everything really do ideas ever migrate from the paintings into the drawings or is it pretty much just drawings and paintings no it's all going back and forth there's some sort of cross-pollination between all the medium and how the media and how they can somehow inform or um, provoke other approaches or attitudes. One of, the, one of the things I really enjoyed about preparing to talk to you was looking through a lot of paintings and looking through a lot of prints and looking through a lot of drawings, and it felt like that. It felt like there was kind of a, a, a never-ending circle of informing that, that never was... You know, sometimes, you know, with Matisse's, to take one example, one, one artist at random... You know, I'm not sure that kind of a lot of the stuff in the prints makes its way into the paintings, or even maybe later in his career that the stuff in the drawings makes its way into the paintings. But but with each of the thirds of your work, I found it really hard to necessarily identify where things started. Well, they all, they all do in some sense start through drawing, whether if not through specifically producing a drawing itself, that the the sort of the investigation and the and the the process is one about gesture and inscription in some way. So the, the materials change and the processes change, but the approach is all uh, through drawing. I've been, I mean, it's just a notion I've had more and more lately that that's, that's really my connection to why I keep doing all of this stuff. Some idea about thinking of drawing as a way of, of mapping and uh, indicating uh, and exploring information. The first drawings in the exhibition are of or refer to plants or parts of plants, and they have titles such as Dark Plant 11, uh, that's a 1982 work. Uh, there's a 1981 work titled Botanical Subject. You did an interview, a conversation a few years ago with Jennifer Samet for Hyperallergic, and you talked about using what you called quote, found images as raw material. You mentioned using picture books of natural history and science and the like. Why in the 19, you know, why, why did you start with plants and botany, at least in terms of the work we see here? I mean, I imagine you made drawings before 1982, but in terms of maybe the mature work. Well, I think because the, um, I was very involved in this notion of understanding and exploring uh, the materials of, of painting and drawing themselves. And so much about uh, pigments and dyes uh, were came from that that place, and the fact that I was using so much of that material and trying to understand that material in itself for its physical and chemical properties, and also for the architecture of these forms, I was interested in how the um, 
uh, they were structured themselves and had some curiosity about their just how they looked and how I might be able to apply the drawing materials themselves to somehow transcribing those structures into drawings. That's interesting because there's a long history of botanical illustration informing and interesting artists who, who did not necessarily confine themselves to botanical illustration. In fact, there's some of that work at the Met right now in the Public Parks, Public Parks Private Gardens exhibition. W were you ever interested in botanical illustration, or was it more about specifically actual plants and flowers and such? No, I was interested in, in um, visualization and the sort of accumulation and of um, natural histories. I mean, we were talking before about Thomas Cole and the and the 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 idea of the 19th century of trying to catalog and uh, describe much of the natural world and the, and the, the presentation of those facts and uh, those specimens was something that interested me. Just how how this the the information architecture and how it was presented seemed to have, be a resource of something that I could explore as a potential for for drawing and to try to get at some other possible meanings might be unlocked through the through the that practice of making drawings. We're talking about a couple of drawings from the early 1980s. Do you think any of those botanical interests are are still in your work now whether it's drawing or painting? Yeah, I mean in in the sense that it it ties into notions I have about form and structure and how they develop into larger ideas about sort of ecological ideas about both the world that they might suggest and the way the paintings themselves are a kind of model for that kind of system. So I wasn't surprised to see uh, plants and the botanical influences in these early 80s drawings. I was surprised to see a 1989 drawing titled Three, which references a figure. Um, it's, a, it's a drawing now at the Whitney. And I guess maybe it shouldn't have surprised me. I knew that when you were at Pratt and at the Art Students League and other other places in New York in the late 60s and early 70s that, that you did some figure drawing. Did that stick with you all the way through to 1989 in some form before it came out in this drawing? Or was it something that you, you left alone and then rediscovered in the late 80s? Well, figure-like. Uh, and I think that there's a way that all of, I think all the work in some sense is a desire to, to uh, arrive at some, some likeness, some kind of figural likeness, uh, in one way or another. I think that was part of the excitement I got from working in those early botanical drawings, that they, they gave back a kind of choreography that, uh, pictorial choreography that corresponded in some sense to the physical gestures in the drawing. And I, I don't know, it, 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 gave back a kind of possible reading, a kind of imagery or picture-making possibility for my interest in structure. So I think I think figures, it's always been an interest, and it's, it finds its way into the work more and more in, in, in a variety of ways. Do you mean then or do you mean now? I mean always. Ah. <laughs> I'm going to have to go, go, go through looking for that. In, in hindsight, was it valuable to... To study figure drawing as a student? Yeah, totally. I think that's that's totally the way that I work. Out of that, trying to use the, the kind of devices and strategies of so much representational painting towards abstract ends. I mean, you know, de Kooning said that even abstract shapes should have a likeness, and there's some that there's some of that quality that I hope the work possesses. That there's a way in that is in, in some way pictorial. And that there's a, a necessarily a narrative that unfolds in some sense through the, the looking and the discovery that takes place in engaging the drawing. In that Jennifer Samet interview I referenced earlier, you described pattern-making systems as a, quote, preoccupation of yours. And one of my very favorite things about your paintings, many decades of your paintings, is seeing that play out and change and I don't want to quite use the word evolve because that's loaded with connotations. But, you know, the, the, the paintings do kind of evolve. When you do a so show such as this, a show that has about 35 years worth of drawings in it, do you see a line of, of evolution or evolving continuity in it? 
Uh, yeah, I hope I hope so. <laughs> you know, going deeper and going wider, uh, establishing a, a different relationship to the work and establishing a deeper connection to the process of making these things. And I'm more, you know, it's corny, but like I'm more of a getting a, a better idea about myself and what my interests are and how I might locate myself within the, the body of work and within the world of itself. No, I get that. I get that because I, when I read stuff I wrote 20 years ago, I, I think I feel the same way. Do you in this show see that pattern making was as big a preoccupation as, as you think it was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's a big, it's a big part of how it's a big part of how I relate to things and how I see the world uh, structured. So I'm more and more acknowledging that to myself and allowing that to help drive the work, that, that combination of material processes and um, graphic patterning systems um, helping to build some sort of metaphoric pictorial language is sort of what, what the project is. One last kind of broad question before we get into some specifics. I noticed in the checklist that quite a number of the works in the show are, are still in your possession, in your collection. Do you use old drawings? Do you look at them from time to time and thus you know, have it be possible that they're informing newer work? Or is it more of the kind of thing that when you're done with them, you put them away until a curator calls and says, you know, hey, let's look at these and do a show? <laughs> Most, mostly that, working through them, and unless, I, unless there's some... Um, opportunity to show them or that they're or or that there there's an intention to show them in a, in a, as, as part of an exhibition one of the great things about a survey show is that it gives us people like me a chance to see the work change to to possibly identify points or moments of transition and, and one of the transitions i think i see in in your drawing is that in many of the early drawings from the 80s, you're very much respecting the edges of the paper, confining uh, your compositions and the world of, of that drawing to the borders of the paper. The thing always kind of ends at the edge. And then as we get into the 1990s, especially the late 90s, that changes. And suddenly you seem willing to suggest that whatever it is you're drawing continues beyond the edge of the paper, or that it might. Is that something that that you were thinking about or, or are aware of? Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think early on there was that, that sense of here's the object and it's existing inside the borders of the paper as a, as a presentation of an independent, uh, autonomous event. And, you know, the, there's an attempt to, to still do that but also when when uh, the work itself demands to to push it into a wider space, it's a little bit what you were saying before about land and landscape that the, the this idea of scape has developed in the same way that landscape has morphed into you know datascape or netscapes or where you know there, there's a whole lot, wider range of of notions about what spaces can be. And I think so much from so much of uh, the meaning of the work is tied up in that those aspects about space and how we perceive them and how how they're generated inside the the drawing process. So, then, so it necessarily has to, as you say, evolve in some sense in different, and depend on conditions on the ground uh, uh, and what's going on in the drawings themselves. I know we're talking about twenty years ago, but do you remember what it was that? kind of pushed you in that direction you know just a, a desire to change and to grow really i mean the, you know some idea about uh trying to continually push oneself into uh an uncomfortable position to do something you hadn't done before so after working with those very finite forms located uh in the center of a, of a piece of paper or, or across a gridded uh, graph of information i mean there was some sense to, to torque or warp the space in some way and have it be, be more continuous and more smooth and fluid. Yeah, it's really, I, I think that as, certainly as I flip through the catalog and I suspect that as people go through the show, it's something that becomes really, really evident. We'll come back, um, I think, in a few minutes to uh, 
it's really about widening the vocabulary and, and having more tools, you know, within reach so that there's still drawings being done now that, that deal with the same kind of presentation of, of, sing, of a singular event in, in the middle of a, of a piece of paper. It's just, it's just about having a wider range of uh, possibilities available. Let's talk about the sevenfold sequence drawings from, from 2008. There are two forms that come into the work and in, in, into your work in these drawings that that fascinate me and are that it probably make up two of my very favorite things in your oeuvre. One is roundish and is repeated a lot, both in the sevenfold works and for really almost in the next decade of your work. And I think it's a roundish form that is related to your interest in knots. And another is is a squarish shape that appears to have kind of an optical bulge in it. And both of these shapes my or, or shapes or forms migrate between your paintings and and your drawings. What about those two shapes or forms weren't just interesting to you but have held your interest? I don't know. That's why I made the drawings. But the um, they were just a, a way for me to sort of generate this sort of figural notion I was talking about before. So many so many figures began to emerge from the exploration of drawing these kinds of forms and contrasting that sort of pillowing effect from that uh, squarish figure you were talking about to the, the flatness of the paper. It just, it just was a way for me to, to build and accumulate and allow for kind of unpredictable imagery to emerge out of that process of drawing. You mentioned the figure, those knot-like forms. Could we almost think of those as kind of informed by fingers then and, and fingers folding over each other? You could. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. But I, I don't understand in what way. I mean, it's, I see them more as, I see these sort of like animated narratives developing across them or inside them and, and taking on a kind of figural and facial, possible figural and facial readings. I don't know what you, you exactly mean by the, the fingers and things. Well, when you said figurative or figural, all of a sudden I I looked at them and thought, oh, that could be, it, it, parts of them kind of look like fingers overlapping other fingers. There's a possibility of that, too. I mean, I made a, I actually made a print for Cabinet Magazine that dealt with the kind of finger imagery. And uh, when I when I had done a, a show that uh, about Harry Smith's string figure collection. So it's interesting to think about like string figures and how they're made using fingers and lines in order to develop a kind of abstract narrative. So it's interesting making that connection, actually. And how much fingers are involved in, in generating these kinds of marks of holding pencils in your fingers. Another series of drawings I wanted to ask about is a 2014 series called Addendum. And it's a series of drawings in which there's an unusual... We'll have images of these on, on manpodcast.com. There's an unusually clear, gridded representation of, of deep space, perspectival space, and the drawings, and then you draw forms over them, over those grids, kind of obscuring the middle of the drawing. And the feeling, to a viewer, at least to me, is if you're wanting to acknowledge the art historical importance of perspective, and that then you wanted to gum it up uh, or obliterate it. Do you remember what you were playing with there? Just an interest in these two competing systems, or and how they're inter interrelated and interact. That that notion of the of the modernist gridded space, the Renaissance perspective space, and a kind of digital warping. All all three of those components are something that interests me in terms of generating deeper, more complex pictorial spaces, and how that could play a role inside the work, and how that can provide a a kind of space within which other forms can develop and then activate and inhabit. So it was, it was some some big notion about that to get myself moving in terms of making making new drawings. We were talking a little bit earlier about how in the late 90s your drawings seemed to really push to the edges and beyond of paper and to de-emphasize the center of the piece of paper seems to me that with these drawings in 2014, the addendum drawings, and for a lot of the work you've been making since, you got reinterested in the center of, of the piece of paper or in your paintings in the center of, of the canvas again. Definitely. <laughs> it's happening. Yeah, just as, a, just as that 
presentation of information straight on, straight ahead. It seemed like the something to develop. And now, so that's still a, a preoccupation right now of mine. And maybe morphing now into ideas about symmetries and how that can play off against the, this, the centrality of so many forms that are, that, are, that are being generated at the moment. Is this a good example? So you're about to show new paintings at, at Nasby Marks. show opens in May. Is this a good example of an idea migrating from the drawings beginning in around 2014, and then we're going to see them on canvases here this spring? Yes. They really do come out of, these paintings really do come out of a, a series of drawings. I mean, a wide, a pretty wide range of formal devices and, and, and different kinds of organizational strategies. But each of these drawings comes out of a drawing or a group of drawings that, are, that previously had explored the possibilities of, uh, that later found further development in these particular paintings. I haven't seen the paintings yet. The show opens in May and we're taping this in April. But something that comes into the drawings in, in recent years and that I think are going to be in these paintings too are, and forgive the inelegance of the word, dots. <laughs> and, and these are dots that seem to be moving, even though they're not, of course, kind of expanding into space, contracting from space. There are some paintings you made in the last few years, paintings such as Scale and Cloud and Bloom. Those three are all from 2015-16. At the risk of asking just the dumbest question, what about dots became interesting to you? Points, maybe. Uh, yeah, I was thinking my word was terrible. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about points and, and how they are distributed across a, a surface in order to determine kind of spatial coordinates, how they relate to ideas about networks and grids and about uh, surfaces and bodies sort of abstract systems that can be rearranged and uh, engineered in order to uh, generate some new new kind of image so that, so there's it's, it's it's one component part or one one aspect of the vocabulary in terms of developing a, a kind of pictorial language for me yeah there's some drawings from the mid early to mid 2010s where it appears that there is something figurative, maybe a head surrounded by hair underneath a field of points. Okay. <laughs> no, no, maybe not. Well, I don't know. Reads, there's one that's not titled in the catalog that reads that way for me, and, and I, I think it's an interesting collision. It's just uh, five pages before the Rachel Kushner section, and there are kind of horizontal bars of, of pencil and then uh, a field of points, and then kind of a circle in the middle. It, it, it struck me as a really interesting collision of a head-like form, although nothing appro approaching visage, kind of a collision of two different kinds of space. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, that's, that's the general idea, sort of allowing these things, uh, dr driving these systems to the points of collision and uh, seeing how those, the, what emerges out of that far from equilibrium state, like sort of driving these two systems into each other and seeing what emerges out of it, like sort of like a particle collider in order to make a new, a new image. Yeah, this isn't a collision left to right or top to bottom. This is a collision of two things on the paper on top of each other. And it's very exciting to look at. I, <laughs> it's been I'm sitting on my desk for three or four days looking back at me. <laughs> hey, like, it's a collision, kind of laminate, lamination of collisions. And I think that that's sort of something I'm after, a kind of equalization of pressure across the entire surface that's being layered rather than being balanced in some way. So that the, that the drawing is an accumulation of events that unfold over time. One of the things I read to prepare to talk to you was a 2010 interview you did with Isabel Dervaux, who was probably then, yeah, she was at the Morgan by then. And you and she talked about how much you like and value Matthias Grunwald's drawings, which maybe I should have seen coming, but I didn't. And you two didn't spend a whole lot of time on, on that. And it left me wondering, how did you come to Grunewald's drawings and what do you find in them that works for you? Well, it was really seeing seeing them 
physically in person and went to, and then went to tour. There's an amazing, there's just an amazing drawing I went to tour and the, the scale of his drawing was just so unlike anything I'd ever seen from that period. And the, the graphic power and emotional uh, impact was just so tremendous. A remarkable achievement, those drawings. Reading that conversation with Dervo got me, kind of got me to look at some of the drawings in this show and to think about who of your contemporaries you might be looking at and thinking about. And if it's okay with you, I want to throw some names out there and maybe you can tell me if there is something in their work you find useful and if so, what. The first artist I want to ask about is uh, an artist uh, who, like you, spent a lot of time up the Hudson, and that's Thomas Muskowski. Do you find either his paintings or his drawings useful to you? U- useful? I mean, I admire Tom's work, and, and I can see where we're exploring a similar territory in certain ways. So it's nice to have company. Because it seems to me that he does that. That some of the same tensions we've been talking about and collisions um, that are in your work. Yeah, I mean, there's a are, are in his work. There was a show of drawing of his a couple of years ago at uh, the case that there's there's just so much pictorial intelligence in the way that he builds his pictures. It's uh, that I really admire. So it, it's useful in the sense that it's it's a, a degree of excellence that everyone can aspire to. I think he builds compositions really differently than you do, but but he lays things in paintings and drawings on top of other things in paintings and drawings in a way that I I think I see in your and in yes, your work the, too. The, as I said, care and as I said, an intelli- intelligence that uh, in the way these things are put together that's rare these days. So I admire what he's doing. Jonathan Lasker. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the subject matter that Jonathan Lasker has been exploring, uh, in terms of the sort of wider subject matter through his use of language and through his sort of syntactic deployment of formal elements. One of the things I think I see in his work and that I think I see in your work is how space is used within the rectangle and how... Uh, neither of you feels or or felt to to, to speak retrospectively of, of your work that you had to activate or use every square foot of canvas, but that something in a particular spot of the canvas could could be strong enough that it could hold down the area around it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a kind of parallel to the way that he's building his works in terms of compositions. Those little drawings he does are so terrific. In a way, he's almost writing a score for the paintings. I think of all of the significant painters of his slash your generation, it took me the longest to understand his. The pictures are very resistant to uh, what? They're not so seductive. They're They're hard to keep in your head as an image, but when you're in front of them, you can't tear your eyes away from them. You know, we were talking earlier about how figurative stuff continues and lives on in your work, even though you don't make kind of art school figure drawings anymore. And I think there's some of that in Martin Purrier. And I wonder if you look at him. Uh, sure. Martin, greatly admire Martin's work. His commitment to sort of pushing this the excellence in the carpentry of that material is just remarkable, wonderful work. Do you look at his drawings and prints? Uh, somewhat, but less than the sculptures, really like the sculptures. This one might be too obvious, especially given kind of that late 90s extending beyond the edges of the drawing work we were talking about earlier, but Solowit. Yeah, in terms of the, the, the system's approach towards building, building works. I mean, that, whole, that whole generation of people had a big impact on them. Uh, you know, in t- in terms of focusing on the facts, laying out the information clearly, exploring uh, materials, trying to to establish a con- conceptual parameter within which one would operate, all of that was very formative for me when I was in art school. Did Did you ever experiment with creating rules or or almost equations the way Lewitt did? No, no. I mean, I'm much less systematic or rigorous in that way, but I think that. Every project and the whole enterprise, in some ways, a, a consequence of me 
inventing a kind of game or a kind of language in which to operate and then sort of breaking breaking those rules when the uh, conditions on the ground <laughs> to, uh, demand more desperate responses. So I feel as if I'm, I'm, I'm establishing rules and moving along and pushing the picture along uh, uh, until something something becomes necessary that, that isn't in, in the rule book in order to, to get myself into another space or another place. I've often felt that when looking at your paintings or drawings that there are, are rules, that you have had rules for how you've made given, given works. Do you have kind of Richard Serra style rules where you write out rules and follow them, or is it less structured than that? I mean, do you have... How do rules work for you? It's they're more informal in terms of they're more to channel my energies and, and give them a direction. And then once once the process starts, everything is sort of up for grabs. But I'm, I'm trying to work within the rules within each body of work or which within each singular work in order to direct myself towards some some subject or possible meaning that might come out of that process. So it's not as it's not about setting up the rules and then accepting whatever happens at the end. But it but it it, it it's a help in order to narrow down narrow down the focus of the activity and to establish a a goal. You know within the within the open ended uh, the widely open ended system of painting itself it's just a way to narrow things down in order to find a way to to move forward is it or or was it the kind of thing where you'd write down three or four rules in a notebook before attacking a body of work yeah sometimes sometimes not in my head but not on not on paper not as well notebook things yeah no just trying to 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 map out. Uh, you know how how one spends one's time just having a workbook about projects that are going on at the moment and how to move from one to the next you've exhibited some notebook material in recent years have you exhibited that level of of specificity or granularity in terms of what i mean i you mean the i did a group i showed a group of collages that i called notebooks but uh but not but those weren't Say sentences written out where you had some rules for yourself. No, no. Have they, you ever shown anything like that? No, no. And even the, and the notebook, I call them notebooks, but they're really just a project of uh, collages that were done on uh, loose leaf paper. So in a way, it was a conceit about being a notebook. But the, the image and the an imagery related to a number of enthusiasms of mine about whether it's about architecture, or science, or whatever got put into this this project. I, I remember those works really well because it was one of those things that when I saw it, I remember thinking, oh, this is an artist archive that is going to be fun to hopefully have access to someday in some institution because <laughs> it's full of visual information that art historians would, would love to find things in. Perhaps. <laughs> Last artist I wanted to ask about, and, and this is probably the, the wildest of, of my little list, is Ed Moses. I can see why you asked that, and I don't know the work that well, but I have uh, over the years seen things here or there, and I got to meet him, and he's just the most magical, charming guy. He's just so great. So the the, the kind of activities that he was involved with were just a terrific slice of uh, the painted world. He was just terrific. So I feel very sympathetic to what he was trying to do. He also was interested in the botanical, if you will, and your 1993 drawing bump map, which is in the drawing center show, yeah, reminds me very much. It in the show. Oh, it didn't. It didn't have room for it, which was sad. But but it reminds you of something that Ed did. Yeah, he he did these screens that were were that jumped off from botanical illustration, wherein the botanical references were blank space, and the rest of the screens were covered with graphite and bump map. Feels like that. I mean, certainly, bump map is is mostly graphite with 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 white space, and isn't specifically botanical, but it feels like 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 it is. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't know those words, but I like the way you describe this. The uh, and and because in some sense, I think that's that's where I'm trying to push things, where they feel botanical, they feel mineral, where they feel animal. 
and that there's this other possible life force at work inside the, the paintings and drawings. I think there's a lot of that feel, you know, which I feel like I have to say in an exaggerated way because that's how it feels. <laughs> well, how does it feel? That's the big question, right? <laughs> It's the kind of thing that art historians and critics never write about because it sounds a little Looney Tunes, but when you're in front of the work... It's the question Mr. Dillon asks. No, I, I, I like that. Are there any other one or two or three artists who I haven't mentioned that, that you've found yourself thinking about a lot lately? Another 100 or 200 artists, maybe. I don't know. I mean, lots of people. It's everybody's... everybody's Everybody's of interest to me who's making paintings right now because everybody's coming into the, the conversation and dealing with the, the, the forces at work right now and they're making imagery that in some one way or another reflects that. So it's all of interest to me. It's really just a, a then it's just a question of how I'm able to locate myself within the force field. Can I, can I say one other thing? I feel like I need to give a shout out to Claire Gilman, who organized the exhibition at the Drawing Center, as well as the people who contributed to the catalog. Because I just so much appreciate that kind of work that goes into something like this, and, and you know, to the writers who contributed. Peter Cole did a, a, a very beautiful poem essay about a meditation about drawing that I, I think is very special. Not, not just necessarily about my work alone, but just about the activity of drawing and what, what drawing can do. Yeah, let me add my voice to that, too, about the catalog. It's of the size to be handled and read and not merely looked at, which uh, is wonderful and I value a lot. Thanks again. Thank you. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with heart. On view at the Pulitzer through August 11th, Mona Hatoum, Terra Inferma, is the artist's first major solo exhibition in the United States in 20 years and comprises more than 30 sculptures and installations. Merging the languages of minimalism and surrealism filtered through a feminist lens, Hatoum subverts the familiar to offer nuanced perspectives on universal human questions. The exhibition has been organized by the Menil Collection Houston and is on view at the Pulitzer in St. Louis through August 11th, 2018. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Welcome back. Next up, Before the Fall, German and Austrian Art of the 1930s at New York's Neue Gallery. My guest is Stephanie Heckman who's the head of the Fine Arts Collection at the Berlinisch Gallery Museum for Modern Art. Olaf Peters curated the show, Heckman's in the catalog. The exhibition includes around 150 paintings and works on paper, and it looks at how artists in Germany and Austria responded to a decade marked by social disintegration, political chaos, a decade that effectively ended with the beginning of World War II. The aforementioned catalog is available from Amazon for $37, and it's pretty terrific. Stephanie Heckman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Yeah, hi, Tyler. Thanks for inviting me. Your essay starts with what I think to a lot of American art lovers, familiar with a certain narrative of German intellectuals such as scientists and artists fleeing the country, um, are only beginning to understand, and that is that many artists stayed in Germany and Central Europe throughout the Nazi years. Uh, there's a whole exhibition about this up now at Harvard, uh, curated by recent band podcast guest Lynette Roth. And then there's, say, this extraordinary Magnus Zeller painting that kicks off your essay. What is that painting, and what does it tell us about German artists who stayed and their response to Nazism? Yes, um, that's true. After the uh, National Socialists took power in 1933, um, there was a large number of modern artists who remained in Germany, despite political pressure, and some uh, because they had no alternative. 
and most of them withdraw from public life into isolation of their studios to the provinces or they had to go underground and many were caught, deported, put in prison or murdered. And um, Magnus Zeller is a really good example of a German artist under the Nazi regime who stayed in the country. Um, he studied in Berlin uh, by Lovis Corinth. He was a member of the Free Secession, um, an artist association of great influence in Berlin from 1940 uh, on. And his works were exhibited by Paul Cassira. He had exhibitions not only in Berlin, but in Hamburg, Chicago, Vienna. And under the uh, National Socialist rule, he cooperated first with the National Socialist culture politics. He was part of the board of the Berlin Secession from the 1933 uh, on, and he won the Rome Prize of the Prussian Academy of Arts in 1935. And um, when he got problems with uh, Alfred Rosenberg, um, one of the leading ideologists of uh, the Nazi party um, in um, the Free Secession, he withdraw 1937 from public life and moved from Berlin to a little village uh, in the province. And um, there he worked um, on his paintings uh, uh, in, in secret. And some of his paintings uh, were declared 1937 as degenerated and were confiscated. And um, some of his works um, he did in secret deal critical um, with the Nazi regime. And one of the paintings from 1938, I started my essay with, is called The Total State uh, or Hitler State. And it's a, 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 um, a real um, scary, uh, spooky painting about uh, seduction, slavery, and uh, the pomp of representation of a uh, totalitarian uh, state. This and uh, other paintings of Magnus Zeller from 37 um, are very good example, uh, examples for the turn of many artists toward the subjective, mythical, and catastrophic at that time. And uh, what we see on the painting is a, a huge idol made from stone on a flat open cart. Gun barrels are coming out of his head and the cart is pulled by hundreds of slaves. And men in black uniform with whips force them to pull harder. And some of them carry red and white flags with a swastika. And today, uh, we know from comparison with his uh, sketchbook that Zeller added the flags only 1945 to make his critical uh, message more clear. It's an amazing painting. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Um, so I'm guessing that Zeller could not have shown this painting, exhibited this painting um, in 1938. Yeah, right. Nobody could see it. They were produced uh, in secret and uh, um, he uh, um, couldn't show them. They were not exhibited. That's the tragic uh, of those paintings we now uh, um, uh, um, see and, uh, and think, oh, yeah, they are uh, um, premonitions uh, of uh, catastrophic time. But the thing is that they couldn't be seen by the contemporaries. Um, they were painted in isolation, hidden from any visitor, visitor and um, most of them were firstly shown long time after the end of the Second World War. One of the, the really interesting things about your essay and the illustrations that uh, run with it is that you, you note that many artists in these years identified with the role of the visionary or the prophet in their, in their artworks. First, before we get to a couple of examples, first, how, how so and why the visionary? Why the prophet? Yeah, ever since antiquity, artists were believed to possess the gift of prophecy. And this topos, um, and that's very, very interesting, got new relevance in modern art with a new influence of religious and para-religious movements in the Weimar uh, Republic. And many artists saw themselves in the role of prophets or were seen in this role by their contemporaries. 
or the artists referred uh, uh, to seers and prophets in their works, as Max Beckmann or Otto Dix evidently did in their great self-portraits uh, with the crystal balls. Yeah, these two paintings are, are, are just kind of amazing to see next to each other. These are, uh, it's a Max Beckman painting from uh, 1936 in which he's holding a crystal ball. And the Otto Dix self-portrait, which I think is probably better known in the U.S. anyway, is at the Ludwig. Um, and he, it's a self-portrait in which um, a crystal ball is sitting on, on a table uh, next to him. Is there any particular German... Uh, tradition of, of, of crystal balls meaning something or being used in a certain way? Or are these guys just kind of finding it on their own at this moment? No, I think, yeah, I think they refer uh, um, uh, uh, to an attribute of uh, a witch or a seer, which is classic. Um, um, I, I don't uh, know other paintings um, where the crystal ball is used in that way, uh, they um, could ref refer to from from their time. I, I don't know any. Today, we uh, know how the Nazis reacted against modern art museums, such as uh, the L.A. County Museum and and the Neue Gallery have, in the last you know ten or twenty years, done major shows of um, degenerate art in that moment. So at at the time, you know, in 1933. Um, kind of when this show begins, were there artists who expected the National Socialists to leave them alone, to allow them to make and, and show work as they had in the previous decade or so? Yeah, I, I think so. After uh, 1933, it was not that clear how the Nazis would deal with modern art. Uh, Josef Goebbels, for example, was a big fan of expressionistic uh, art, and many modern artists as Emil Nolde, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, Rudolf Schlichter, Franz Ratzewill, and many, many others, um, they thought uh, um, they might represent German art in the future, or at last uh, to prevail with their art under the new regime. German artists who, who stayed in Germany and German artists who left both produced art that presented images of disaster. I imagine this wasn't too big a risk for, for Germans in America, but are there examples of such a seemingly clear subject matter being shown and considered in Germany before the war? Yeah, for, for many artists, it was uh, quite dangerous to uh, depict uh, those enigmatic, gloomy visions um, about the decline of an empire uh, like um, Hans Grundig uh, did with a large triptych from 1935 um, to 1938. And the couple, Hans and Leah Grundig, um, they remained in Germany for political reasons, uh, despite the Jewish uh, origins of Leah. And they were both members of the Communist Party, and they worked from a position of uh, resistance. They had a little hand press and printed etchings and sent them to their friends and comrades, uh, um, and uh, um, they show uh, um, the terror of war um, before the Second World uh, War started. And to produce, uh, but also to view such visions of disaster, I think was a high risk in, in, in Germany. Um, um, many works uh, that from today's perspective seem so visionary or admonitory uh, could not be seen um, at that time. You note that some works that we could now read as portending doom for the German state, such as, and I'm going to botch this name, I'm sorry, such as a 1935-36 painting by Richard Olza, uh, now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, actually had nothing to do with contemporary politics. Although, um, I got I to say, having, uh, you know, we'll have the picture on, on manpodcast.com. Had I been a Nazi official, I never would have believed this painting had nothing <laughs> to do with contemporary <laughs> politics. How mindful were artists of potential risks, even with art they thought of as, as not being about um, the Nazis and that moment in German history? Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question. Also, uh, Richard Oelze's work, Expectation, um, um, was painted 1935-36 in Paris, uh, where Oelze was part of the circle of the, the surrealists. 
since 1933, and the Surrealists highly estimated his, his work. He was not an emigrant. He uh, went voluntarily back to Germany in 1938 and lived here until, uh, until he was called up uh, to the Wehrmacht and uh, sent to war. And his painting, Expectation, um, I think has no explicit uh, political message, nor is it a premonition of coming events uh, like war or persecution. I think um, we have to understand it much more uh, general in a surrealistic way. It's a painting about psychic uh, or mental state. It's about threat, fears, doubt, and mystery in general. In, in general, but I uh, think you're right. It, it uh, um, wasn't exhibited in Germany at that time, and it's the question how uh, the viewers would have reacted. You know, with that in mind, what was the relationship between art made in Germany in the decade before the war and art made outside Germany? So did artists who, who stayed in the country have a, a pretty good knowledge of what was going on elsewhere in Europe and vice versa, or was it already hard for artists in Germany to know what was going on outside the country? Yeah, I, I think it was quite difficult uh, for artists who were isolated and working in secret in Germany to get information about the develop, uh, development of, of art in Europe. But every case and fate is, is different. It depends uh, on the context the, the artists had. Um, if you um, take Max Beckmann, for example, uh, he was very close uh, with Lili von Schnitzler in Berlin. He, uh, he moved from Frankfurt to Berlin when he was banned from teaching at the art school um, in 1933 um, and lived in Berlin until uh, he emigrated to Amsterdam in 1937. And Lili von Schnitzler and her husband sympathized with the Nazis and they were uh, well informed and she was very interested in art. So I'm sure he, he got information. But uh, even for an artist like um, Max Beckmann, it was not easy to uh, um, get exhibitions or uh, uh, catalogs outside the country uh, after 1933. You know, with only a couple of exceptions, the exhibition at the Neue Gallery features mostly men. Was it harder for women to make work in Germany in these years or, or harder to at least stay there? No, um, I think the political attitude or origin was much more important at that time than the gender. I think it was in general hard for a woman uh, to be an artist at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to also mention a couple of artists who figure significantly in the Neue Gallery exhibition. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how they operated during the National Socialist era and maybe... Uh, if we know, even how their art was understood or accepted by, by the ruling regime. The catalog opens with a series of paintings by Franz Radziwill. Um, they're paintings of kind of vaguely architectural land, I'm sorry, vaguely agricultural landscapes on which not a lot grows. How, you know, how did, how did, did he make these paintings in secret? Could he show these? Yeah, I think that wasn't a problem for him. He, he, I think he's a really interesting uh, artist at that time because he sympathized with a, a Nazi uh, ideology um, later. He joined the Nazi party in um, 1933, and after Paul Klee and Heinrich Kampendonk were banned from teaching from the art school in Düsseldorf in 1933, he was offered uh, a job there, and he took it. He took it. And he was shocked when his students call him a uh, uh, Kulturbolchevist. Um, I don't know <laughs> the word in English. Um, <laughs> referring uh, to his uh, early expressionistic or um, works of new objectivity. He, he was banned from the art school and tried very hard to be uh, reha rehabilitated by, by the Nazis. And uh, to make a long story sh short, his uh, works were confiscated from public collections and declared as degenerated and uh, exhibitions uh, were forbidden. And after the war, he uh, revised works to make it appear as he had been against the Nazi uh, re regime. It sounds like that was something artists did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are not the better men. <laughs> the last artist I wanted to ask about is Felix Nussbaum. 
there's a picture of his in the show called Self Portrait, uh, Self Portrait in the Camp from 1940. It is uh, just kind of a jaw dropping thing. Um, what do we know about Nussbaum in this period and what he's showing in this painting? Yeah, Nussbaum is uh, really has uh, had a very sad uh, story. Um, we in the uh, Berlinische Galerie we have uh, really main works uh, of him and uh, bought them in the 1970s. He was the son of a Jewish uh, shopkeeper in Osnabrück, and uh, he lived from 1924 in Berlin and was quite successful as a painter in the Weimar uh, Republic. And uh, he got a scholarship um, of the Villa Massimo in um, 1932 and lived in Rome uh, until um, 1934. And after the Nazis uh, took power, he lost this uh, scholarship. Um, his studio in, in Berlin burned down and he lost many of his uh, early works and emigrated uh, to Belgium. And during uh, uh, the war then, 1940, uh, he came to the internment camp in uh, Saint-Suprien uh, in the south, uh, south, south of France. Uh, but he could ex escape and uh, he went back to Belgium where he and his wife, uh, Felker, lived underground. And 1944, uh, the couple was deported to Auschwitz and murdered. Um, his works were nearly forgotten, and the first exhibition uh, uh, took part in Berlin in the 1970s. And as I told, the Berlinische Galerie bought main works from that exhibition uh, for our collections. Yeah, it's an amazing picture. Don't miss it on, uh, on manpodcast.com. Stephanie Heckman, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.